second graders received a Bible earlier this morning, and they come, came forward and gathered up here around the steps, held their Bibles up high. I gave them a little charge and a little encouragement, and then Drew Flowers came and read the passage for us. And this morning, Finn is going to come and read for us from the text. His parents, Will and Allison, sitting over there. And we brought the step for you. If Jay Marty needs that occasionally, I'm certain that you do as well. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the story that records the transfiguration of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as you hear this beloved Son of the living God read it, Remember that this really happened on a mountain that God himself created. This happened to our Savior, Jesus. Mark 9, 1 through 13. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took him with Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone but them, but wait, with them, saw with them, saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the son that the man, he should suffer for many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Finn. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are in a place where your word of God, the word of God is held high, where from the earliest of ages, we teach our children that this is your living word, that it is alive. We teach them that it is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And Father, we need all of that right now. We're so thankful for the Holy Spirit who is doing that work and will do that work even now. And we are desperate to have our eyes opened, desperate to have our ears hear rightly. I pray, Father, that you would bless all who are here and those who are with us online, those who are listening later this week. I pray that you would take these words from your holy scriptures and press them deep into our hearts and minds that we might be changed forever as a result of what we see and hear. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, this morning we're looking at a passage that I think, unfortunately, we don't give enough attention to as believers. Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit just a few weeks ago, and the transfiguration don't get, I think, what they deserve. 
These are such significant moments in the life of our Savior and the life of his body. And this morning as we unpack what it was for these three men, Peter, James, and John, to see Christ transfigured truly is it's overwhelming. It's astonishing. But we don't have a category for it, and neither did they. This morning as we unpack what's taking place here in Mark, I think it's really important to understand how frequently you and I hold misguided expectations of Jesus. How frequently our eyes are just a little bit off, centered on the things of man as opposed to the things of God. In 1994, I I went to seminary so that I could see. I wanted to see what this really meant. I wanted to have much deeper understanding into the things of God and of his holy word. And it was only a few months in when I really needed to see physically with glasses. So basically since 1994, I've been wearing glasses and it didn't happen to me till I was in seminary. The enormous amount that we had to read led me to a place of saying, I can't see the blackboard. And it literally still was a blackboard. There wasn't PowerPoint yet. There wasn't even really whiteboards. And I remember sitting there going, I can't see. It wasn't until though that I put on my brother-in-law's glasses at a dinner, not knowing what would happen, that I realized truly how bad my eyesight was. Well, it wasn't just that I needed physical glasses. It's that I also needed spiritual lenses The pair of glasses I'm wearing right now, I've had for three years. Three years. I should have went back two years ago. I didn't. I should have went back last year, but because of COVID, I didn't. And now what that means is I'm looking up into the balcony. I only see figures. I can't make out faces. I know my wife often sits up here on the left side, but she's not there at the moment, I don't think. So I can't see that well. I need to go back. That's not true just physically. And it's not true just of me. We see, but we don't see. We are not overwhelmed with things that we should overwhelm by. We read a passage like this and they're like, oh yeah, this is the transfiguration of Jesus. As if it's just the transfiguration of Jesus. Peter, James, and John saw something that no other human beings had ever seen and haven't seen since. They saw what all who are in Christ will see for all eternity. So what happened at this moment in the history of redemption is a really big deal. And one of the things that Jesus does in this moment, along with the Father, is shows us that salvation is not just an individual saying, I believe in Jesus, let's get on with life until I go to heaven. It is this magnificent history of redemption that involves so much more than we really are able to see unless God opens our eyes. One of the men who helped me see while I was in seminary was Dr. Hans Byers. He came to us from Germany and I was in one of his first classes. He was scary. The way he thought about education, he said, I would prefer there be only one test in all of seminary and that would be the final. And the final would incorporate everything you learned and it would have one question. And my thought was, wow. How many pages is that going to be? How hard would that be? My very first exam that he gave me, I failed. And I didn't fail by myself. And I failed badly. And so did every other student, except for one. And there's always that one. And that one ends up teaching at the seminary anyway. So that's good. (laughs) 
But Dr. Byers, who taught Greek in New Testament, taught me a lot more than just how to read in the Greek and translate passages. He taught me how to pray, not so much by instruction, but by listening to his prayers before each class. When we started studying the Gospel of Mark in August, I read something from the introduction to his commentary on the Gospel of Mark. And I want to read it again this morning to make the point that though you heard it months ago, like me, you need to hear it again. And I could probably read it again next week. And what he's aiming to do in this introductory paragraph is to show us that our discipleship might not be exactly what Jesus taught us it should be. So listen as I read. Sincere Christians hold helpful yet divergent ideas about discipleship. So listen to what he's saying. Sincere Christians, these are women and men who truly are in Christ, hold divergent ideas about discipleship. And he says they're helpful. Some focus on steps that disciples must follow. Some emphasize one-on-one mentoring based on the relationship of Paul and Timothy. Others see the practice of spiritual disciplines as the key, while still others hold to an intellectual approach that accentuates reading and studying good books and offering quotes. Then he goes on. While all of these approaches have something to recommend them, so hear that, there is something to recommend in each of them. He says they also share common weaknesses. And this man is so humble when he writes this. They do not appear to draw their definitions of discipleship from scripture's big picture. And although their proponents look to Jesus for salvation, they do not focus enough on his view of discipleship. Jesus's view of discipleship. What is it? Byer's point is this, that if I were to take five from this section and 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 five from the balcony, and I were to send you out with one question, what is discipleship? It's likely that I would get 20 to 25 different answers, all which would hold something to the value of discipleship but might not have the whole thing there. Even as I look out at the body, I can see some of your faces and I can say, that individual wants it to be centered on deep Bible study and that's enough. I can look on this side and say, there's a man over there that wants it to be primarily about evangelism from the depth of what they've heard. I can see people are saying, it's gotta be redemption groups. It's gotta be getting emotional and in touch with all those feelings. Others are going, feelings don't matter. I don't have them, you shouldn't either. <laughs> Churches take on personalities. So much to the point where somebody, some, sometimes people will say, well, the Holy Spirit's really over there. Meh, he's everywhere. He's God, he's living in us too. Here's Byer's point. We typically take an area of passion mixed with our preferences And suddenly we isolate discipleship to mean this one thing. Even our elders, when we gather together, sometimes you'll hear those passions come up. When one says, it just needs to be one-on-one discipleship. Or another says, it's gotta be sacrificial living. Or another says, it's gotta be transparent life together. All are helpful. All are 
potentially divergent in that we may not be taking our answer of discipleship straight from the lips of Christ. And we can because he speaks to it. And this is one of the reasons why we have the body and we need each other. But we need to be careful that we don't miss who the person of Jesus is and what it is that Jesus says is the essence of discipleship. And here's why I'm going here. Peter had a misguided expectation of discipleship. He was a disciple of Jesus, but he had a very misguided messianic expectation. Peter believed along with the others that when they understood this really was Christ, that he would fulfill this expectation. And Jesus was about to blow that up. In fact, when we get to this part of Mark's gospel, he has already blown it up in one way very powerfully. To follow along, I want to encourage you to open your Bible if you brought it. If you didn't, then use the Blue Pew Bible that's in front of you and turn to Mark's gospel chapter 8. To understand what's happening as Jesus leads these men up on the mountainside, we need to understand what has just taken place. So remember that Mark is most likely recording what Peter's telling him for this gospel. And so as Peter's telling Mark what happens, he's got a theme that he wants to truly nail down. And the theme is this, you see, but you don't see. And friends, that's not a problem you had once. It's a problem you have today. It's a problem you had when you entered the sanctuary today. It's a problem you have right now as you sit and listen. It's a problem you have when you read books. It's a problem you have when you listen to sermons. It's a problem you're going to have the rest of your life until glory. We all have eyes that see, but not yet perfectly. And one of the ways you know your eyes see, but not yet perfectly is when you think you see perfectly. So if you think you see perfectly, know that you don't see perfectly. Humble yourself by God's grace and recognize that there are things that you just don't see that I just don't see and we desperately need God's grace. So Jesus is making this point. Knowing that they have this wrong expectation of who he is, Jesus feeds the 4,000, many, many more. After the apostles, the disciples have witnessed him feeding the 4,000 plus and after they've witnessed him feeding 5,000 plus, which happened earlier, they then get in a boat. And as they get in the boat, the disciples have a fight. This is all in Mark 8. And the fight is, who forgot to bring bread? Now just hear that. They are with the bread of life. They are with the man who just fed thousands with so little. And they're arguing about who forgot to bring bread. They see, but they don't see. They come across the water and Jesus heals a man, a blind man in Bethsaida. But his healing is partial. He heals the blind man and he says, what do you see? And he says, I see people that look like trees, somewhat like my glasses. I see people, but I don't know who they are. I think I see Elliot, Elliot Curlin, maybe. Is that you? All right, I see his head. I can tell it's Elliot. Nice to see you. I can't see very well. This blind man couldn't see at all. Now suddenly his eyes are open and he says, I see people that look like trees. Is it because Jesus lacked power? No. He was making a point, not to the blind man, mainly, but to the disciples. He touches them a second time 
and the man sees clearly. Friends, that must happen to you and me time and time again. And God gives us the grace to do it, the mercy to do it. They see, but they don't see. So now Jesus asked them a question in Mark 8. Verse 27, Jesus went on with the disciples to villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, of course, answers, and he gets it right. He says, you are the Christ. Peter saw, you are the Christ. And he believed that. He really believed it deeply. But then Jesus for the first time, foretells his death and resurrection. Look with me at verse 31 of chapter 8. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. That means it wasn't to be confused. They couldn't have said, well, I think he meant this. He said it plainly. Now, the one who just said, you are the Christ who sees, it's Peter. Now, Peter rebukes Jesus. Have you ever rebuked Jesus? Maybe not as boldly as Peter. Have you ever said, you don't know what you're doing? You're wrong. Maybe in a moment of weakness or in just honesty. Verse 32, and he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside, and Peter began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Let's stop there for a minute. One of the reasons you need new lenses all the time, and so do I, by God's grace, he shows us this, is that we are tempted every day to set our minds not on the things of God, but on the things of man. Often in the ways in which we seek solutions, given the world that we're living in now, given the challenges that we face, face with so many issues, how do we think about sexuality? How do we think about gender? How do we think about justice? How do we think about fill in the blank? How do we think about our country? How do we think about nationalism? It's so easy for us to set our mind on the things of man instead of the things of God and to have inappropriate, wrong, misguided expectations for who Jesus is. And so we need to ask the question constantly, who are we listening to? And are we listening to people who are not misguided in their expectations of Jesus or his church? Are we listening to people who are grounded in the word of God, who are teaching this, the truth about the way we're supposed to be living in this moment? Friends, we constantly need our eyes adjusted. And Jesus is gracious to do it. And so in his grace, he rebukes Peter. 
But basically he says to Peter, what you're saying is coming from the pit of hell. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then it says in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, now what he's about to say to them is Jesus's definition of discipleship. What he's about to say from his own divine human mouth is the definition of discipleship. So no matter what part of discipleship you're passionate about, no matter what particular preference you have and how you're wired with your personality, we cannot argue that this is not the core of discipleship because here's what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, well, who's anyone? It's everyone. Anyone, everyone that would come after Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. So our Florida trip is taking place. A few weeks ago, we encouraged you to grab cards with students' names because it's not just a luxury trip for them. It is a trip where they're going to hear the word of God preached. They're going to worship. They're going to have small groups. They're going to be challenged to think about these things. But how you pray for those students and for the trip actually says a lot about what you think the center of discipleship is. And so I hope that what you're praying is that every student and leader that goes will learn by the power of the Holy Spirit what it means to deny themselves, to take up their cross daily and follow Jesus because that's his definition of discipleship. I'm praying for a young man named Jack and a young woman named Maddie. I just grabbed these names without looking at them. It's kind of interesting because I have a daughter named Maddie who on July 3rd is about to marry a man named Jack. <laughs> Guess what? I'm praying the exact same thing. I'm praying that my Maddie and this Maddie and my soon-to-be son-in-law Jack and this other Jack will be followers of Christ. And that every day they will wake up with a desire to deny themselves and take up his cross and follow him daily. How many of your conversations, whether it's in Bible studies or about missions or about the spiritual disciplines, find its way to the core of all of this is moving towards self-denial, denying self, living in Christ, taking up our cross daily and following him. If it's not, then you need new lenses. If it's not, then somewhere along the way, you see, but you aren't seeing fully. And what Jesus does so graciously, is says, let me help you see. And he does. He helps us see. He's gracious. So how's he going to do it with Peter, James, and John? Well, first, let's go to chapter 9 now. Verse 2. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. So let's just start right there. Who's leading you? Jesus. 
always. Jesus sees Peter's misguided expectations of who he is, Jesus, who he is, what he's about. Six days passed. We have no idea what all they did or talked about. But in this moment now, Jesus is about to show extraordinary grace. So he goes to the inner circle, Peter and the two sons of thunder, James and John. And he says, come, we're going up the mountain. I don't know how often they went up a mountain, but this is a high mountain. Three years ago, when I got these glasses, it was one week before I went to Israel for the first time and only time at this point. I went to see and to hear. And when you're there, it's amazing because you see places where the guide will say, this is actually where it happened. Sea of Galilee, it's pretty obvious. This is the Sea of Galilee. Somewhere on this body of water, Jesus walked. Somewhere on this body of water, Jesus said, be still. Somewhere on this body of water, there was a miraculous catch. It really happened there. And somewhere on one of the mountains that go up eight, nine, 10,000 feet, Jesus took these three. It's a long walk. It's a journey. Imagine their footwear. They go following their savior. They see he is the Christ. But what they're about to see, they could never imagine. What they're about to hear, they could never in their wildest dreams imagine. It's kind of like us, this side of heaven, we might have a faint idea about what it's going to be to see Jesus face to face, but we really don't know. And they didn't know either. So they follow Christ up the mountain. He's leading them and he's leading you. Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, he leads them up the mountain by themselves. And then chapter nine, verse two says, he was transfigured before them. The word literally in the Greek is metamorphosis. He was changed in their very presence. What was changed? They saw the glory of God in the son of God. That which had been veiled by his humanity was no longer veiled. They saw our savior in his eternal glory. That's hard to understand. But just because it's hard to understand and even imagine doesn't mean we shouldn't sit here for a minute and say, what must that have been like? They were the only three humans to see this glory of Christ. The glory which all who are in Christ will see forever. This moment actually happened on one of those mountains. As they're watching, something else amazing takes place. There's Moses and there's Elijah. Now, I'm not sure how well you know your Bible. So I want you to know that Moses had been dead a really long time. And so they didn't know what Moses looked like. It wasn't like somebody had a stone and said, I, I sketched this. This is what Moses looked like. They had no idea. They had no idea what Elijah looked like. Elijah had died a long time ago. Are y'all listening? Elijah didn't die. Elijah didn't die. He ascended. That matters. Here's why. The moment when Jesus is transfigured 
and he's having this conversation with Moses and Elijah, there's a point. What is it? Moses represents the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. Moses himself had been in the presence of God. And when he was in the presence of that Shekinah glory, and then coming down from the mountain, the impact on him was so great that Exodus tells us his face was changed. It was radiant, and he didn't even know. But people saw him. But I don't want you to miss this. That was only an imprint or a reflection of the glory of God. Jesus transfigured wasn't a reflection. Peter, James, and John were seeing the very radiant glory unveiled of Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's amazing. So why was Moses there? Moses' present represents the law. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law. Why was Elijah there? Elijah represents the prophets. The law, all pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. The prophets, all pointing to Jesus, are now fulfilled in this one man who's being transfigured before them. Something else. Moses, because of his own sin, was not permitted to enter into the promised land. He died having never set foot in the promised land until this moment. Now the dead man, his feet are in the holy land. Elijah had been taken up in the chariots of fire. He never died. This is, this is significant. Some have already died. Some here will already die before Christ returns. Maybe all of us. We don't know what stage of the history of redemption we're in. But there will be people like Elijah who never die who are alive when Christ returns and will be taken up. I believe there's tremendous purpose in Moses and Elijah being present with Jesus. But what are they talking about? Mark doesn't tell us, so we go to Luke 9. And Luke tells us that they're talking about Jesus's exodus, the ultimate exodus, which is Jesus's death and resurrection. What Jesus told Peter that call, caused Peter to rebuke him and then Peter to be rebuked by him is affirmed as Peter, James, and John listen in. This really happened. What they saw should have left them speechless. And it did the sons of thunder, but not Peter. Peter. Remember, Mark is writing on behalf of Peter what Peter's telling him. So Peter speaks. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Friends, you're not terrified enough of the glory of God. Neither am I. But any time in scripture when the glory of God was revealed, 
We don't have a picture of someone showing up with a warm latte saying, how are you doing, Jesus? We fall flat on our face, and we will. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, we are intimate with Jesus. Yes, we can sit in our favorite chair or on a hammock or in a pew and be intimate with him, and we must. But we must never forget he's the living God whose radiance and glory is beyond anything that we can even imagine. So bright, so white, so electric, so alive. And Jesus, knowing that these three men needed encouragement, and knowing 2,000 years later that you and I would need the same encouragement, was transfigured before them. They saw Moses and Elijah. Peter speaks because he was terrified. One lesson, if you don't know what to say, I'm in the pulpit, just be quiet. Don't say anything. I think we say way too much. Jesus Christ was gracious to them. He didn't even respond to Peter's comments. The Shekinah glory of the cloud that had overwhelmed the people of Israel so many times. We now see a similar cloud, the same idea in verse 7. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That is discipleship. Jesus said, for all any who would come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Peter, James, and John followed Jesus up the mountain. Six days after Peter rebuked Jesus and was rebuked by Jesus, the Father speaks in the Shekinah glory. And the Father has one thing to say. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Who are you listening to? In Mark 8, Jesus describes the world as an adulterous and sinful generation. It's no different today. But be careful of what you call adulterous. Anything that takes our mind off the mind of Christ and onto the things of man is adulterous. Anything. Anything. Jesus is gracious to give us eyes to see those things and gracious to correct through his word and spirit our misguided expectations and gracious to let us follow him down the mountain. 
where we can continue to walk this side of heaven until we see that man and all of that glory and even more partake in that glory forever. This really happened on a place in the Holy Land on a mountain. Jesus was transfigured. Jesus Christ, thank you for your mercy shown to Peter and James and John and the other disciples. Thank you for your mercy that has been shown to us this morning. Your willingness to be patient with us, to correct our vision, to not leave us in despair, to humble us, that we might see anew with clearer eyes the wonder of who you are. And Father, this word is not just for new believers. It's for those who have been walking with you for 60, 70, 80 years. For those who are struggling in their walk as well as those who feel closer to you right now than ever before. Because the sight of heaven in this adulterous and sinful world, we're simply not always gonna see correctly or hear rightly. So Father, Thank you for teaching us to listen to your son. Would you enable that reality now, Holy Spirit, even now? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.